the conclusion of the book of Colossians. And uh, Scott will wrap us up in the book tonight. It's been a great study in the book. A study and a sermon on the concluding remarks of the Apostle Paul is not necessarily a common sermon that you would hear on the various people he addresses. So a question that instantly comes to mind is why is it worth our time? Why is it, was it even worth God's uh, efforts or, or time of, of providentially sparing and preserving his word and his concluding remarks to the people in the, the church of Colossae? The, the easy answer and almost the, I guess, kind of smart mouth answer is just a part of God's word, so we study it. <laughs> you know, that's it. That's all we need to know. But perhaps the more meaningful answer and the, the richer, deeper answer is this, is that when we look at this passage from Scripture, as with any of the, the passages of Scripture that are concluding remarks, or when we look at the genealogies that are found in the book of Matthew and elsewhere in the Bible, we, we are reminded that Scripture is not some lofty, theological, idealistic writing that does not intersect and apply to life. We're reminded that God's word deals with real people in a real church in real time. With real problems and real struggles, real hopes, and real faith. And so we're reminded today as we look to the people here, two men that Paul addresses, and then later tonight, Scott will lead us through several of the other names. We're reminded that this is a very real letter to the people in Colossae. A word of caution needs to be spoken when we come to this. We don't want to spiritualize the names and have a calendar made for um, the prayer of Tychicus or the faithfulness of Onesimus. Uh, we don't need prayer journals and, and whatnot and every different study Bible known to man and t-shirts uh, for these men. But we do need to look to them and see what can we learn from their lives. What does God teach us from what he has spared and, and cared for and preserved in Scripture about them? There's a story that's told of an old violin that was uh, put forth at an auction. It was a dusty old violin. didn't look very, very pleasurable. It didn't like it was worth playing. As the auctioneer auctioned it off, he, he kept on, and I can't replicate what he sounded like, I'm sure, so I won't even try. But as he, he goes on, he, uh, he can only get $3 for it. He was a bit surprised somewhat, but maybe not so much as he looked at it. And so he said, three, going once, going twice, and right before he says sold, an older gentleman stands up from the crowd, walks to the front, dusts off the violin, tightens the strings, picks up the bow, and plays a magnificent song. And the violin went from selling for $3 to selling for $3,000. Because the violin was useful and beautiful in the hands of the master. Today we look to two men who are very similar to this violin, two men who are very normal, very ordinary men, whose lives don't look spectacular, but whose lives had a great impact in the hands of the Master, in the hands of God. Turn with me this morning to Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. Paul writes these words, As to all my affairs, Tychicus... Our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. For I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. What we want to do this morning is just look at these two men of the church. 
these two men of the early church that had such an impact in Paul's life and even in the in the book of Colossians, the church of Colossae, and ultimately in our lives. So first we're going to look at Tychicus. In verses 7 and 8, who was Tychicus? Do we know much about him? He, he was mentioned five times in Scripture, ch- typically just in passing, referencing him pretty much like this. This is about the, the, the length, the most that we know about Tychicus, what's found here in verses 7 and 8. Apparently he is a native of Asia. He was a likely, most likely a convert of Paul in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He was a faithful worker with Paul. You see that here, and he delivered many of his letters. There are several letters that Tychicus delivered to the churches. But he left no surviving writings. The Dr. Luke, when he records Acts, he tells of no great, magnificent works of Tychicus. He's not listed among the, the incredible apostles. He's just referred to in Scripture. He, he's a very ordinary, a very common violin. But in the hands of the master, his life becomes part of a divine symphony that founds the church. His life becomes very useful. His life becomes an opportunity for God to inspire generations of believers to come through his word. So Tychicus, if you look in verse 7 8, he's described in three, by three ways by Paul. The first thing that Paul describes him as is a beloved brother. He's a fellow Christian. It's the family tie that we have as a body of believers. You'll remember if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be a church family, that you, you exist as a believer. If you're here this morning, you're a believer. You live as a part of two families. Your, your biological family, however that may look, right? You're, you're a part of that family, but also we understand that we are a part of the family of God. We are adopted as children of God. Ephesians 1, Galatians 4 speak of, of God's adoption of those who come to him. John 1 says that to all who have believed in him, God has given the right to become children of God. We are, we are family. And so Paul refers to Tychicus as a beloved brother. There's a depth of relationship there that's united by his faith in Christ the common tie that binds them together as brothers. He is their brother in Christ, and the church is to welcome him as such. The second way Paul describes Tychicus is as a faithful servant. The Greek word here is used as diakonos. It's the same word that we use for deacon. It means a servant, a minister, a deacon. Tychicus is a faithful servant. He's a deacon. But, but mind you, he's not a deacon in the meaning of an office. He's a deacon through his life, through the way he serves, the way he lives, the way he ministers. It's not necessarily an official position. He is simply a servant, a faithful servant of our God. I I would say that, you know, as as we consider, this is just a side note, but as we consider our own deacon ministry here, if someone's life is not characteristic of a servant, as a minister, then that individual certainly should not fulfill the role of a deacon. The, the, the office of deacons that we have now in our churches should be made up of men who live as deacons every day of their life. That they serve and they minister faithfully for the gospel to the gospel. So Tychicus has worked alongside Paul to further the gospel. Keep in mind as we've gone through the book of Colossians, we know that Paul is writing from prison. 
And there's undoubtedly people who have stepped away, people who have turned their backs on Paul. We know that's true because we know some of them opposed him and even tried to undermine him in what, uh, in what Scott read earlier from Philippians. We know that people certainly deserted him in those times, but not Tychicus. He was faithful. He stood beside Paul. And it was because of this faithfulness that Paul entrusted a letter to the church in the hands of Tychicus. Imagine had Tychicus not been a faithful servant. Imagine. Had he not been faithful, had he not been dependable, we would not have this letter. But, but he is a faithful servant, and Paul entrusts him. Paul knows that he can give him that letter to deliver to the church. He is a faithful servant. The final way that Paul describes him is a bondservant. The, the word's a little different. You know, in, in passages such as Romans 1.1 1, 1 or, or Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul describes himself, he says, I, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Christ. The, the Greek word here is a little different. It's soon doulos, and it means a, a fellow servant a fellow slave it, re it refers to one who is a colleague a partner in the gospel paul says tychicus is a fellow a colleague a partner in the gospel in, in furthering the gospel just like me he is a slave he is a servant of god most high jesus is his lord and he is a servant the students a few weeks ago we talked about the hebrew word adonai the, the name of god that means lord and how, and how Christ fulfills that, that. Our primary response, our confession of faith is what? Jesus is Lord. And if he is our Lord, throughout Scripture, God's people are described as what? Servants. All throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, my servant Moses, my servant Abraham. All the way into the Old Testament, David proclaims and rejoices in the Psalms about being a servant of God Most High. And here Tychicus is a faithful servant. He does not serve himself, but he serves God Most High. Likewise, you and I are called to be servants of God. We are slaves, we are doulos. And Paul looks to him and says, soon doulos. He is a partner. He is a fellow servant, a fellow slave of Christ. So what do we learn from Tychicus? What do we learn from his life? We, we learn that the most common acts can be used in a beautiful and mighty way by God. An act as simple as delivering a letter. When Christ reigns supreme in our life, then an act so simple as delivering a letter, an act so simple as tearing down a wall, an act so simple as sweeping a floor, as baking some cookies. An act so simple as cutting some things out to help the ministry of the church during the week. Punching holes in paper. Acts so sim simple. Used by God. Further the gospel. That's what we learn from Tychicus. So the question would be this. Is how are you and I described? Paul, Paul described him as a, a faithful servant a bondservant, a beloved brother. How do people describe you and I as Christians? What is our identity? If someone described Todd, what would it be? If someone described you, how would they describe you to someone as a follower of Christ? 
Would you be known as a beloved brother? Would you be known as a bondservant, a faithful servant, a partner in promoting and furthering the gospel? How are we described? In verse 8, Paul tells the purpose for which he writes these words. Listen to verse 8 again. For I have sent him, referring to Tychicus, to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul sent Tychicus to encourage the hearts of the people. It's the same phrase that he uses in chapter 2. Listen to 2, 1 and 2 in Colossians. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged. It's the same phrase. Having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Paul writes... He writes these words to the Colossians to encourage their hearts. And Tychicus is going to send them a message. He's going to tell them more about what's going on in Paul's life to encourage their hearts. This is what we need to understand. Paul is writing from where? Prison. Paul is chained up. He sends the letter through Tychicus to encourage their hearts it's only by the grace of God it's only by the power of Christ that a letter can be delivered and news of a man and a leader such as the apostle Paul can encourage one's heart it's only by the grace of God that that is possible and Paul says that is the purpose that is why we are sending Paul is relentless then further in the gospel, nothing short of death will stop him from doing that. I, I love his attitude in Philippians chapter 1 that Scott read earlier. I love that attitude. That no matter what happens, I will promote the gospel. If people undermine me, so be it. If they try to spread rumors about me, that's fine. I don't really care. As long as the gospel is proclaimed and it's advanced. That's all that matters. You know what? I may die here in chains. Who cares? I, I don't care because for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I don't know which one's better, Paul says. I, I understand that, that perhaps it's necessary for me to go on living. And if that's the case, then so be it because that's what needs to be done for your benefit. And I will continue on ministering for the glory of God. But if I die, I'll be in the presence of my master my Lord, of whom I am a servant. And Tychicus is a faithful servant of him as well. Paul is relentless. Relentless. That is how it encourages your hearts. Listen to Ephesians 6, verses 19 and 20. Again, Paul is writing from prison. Probably the same prison we think, as best we can tell. Listen to what he says. He says, And pray on my behalf, now, before you read the rest, what do you think he's going to ask for prayer for? He's in prison. What would he possibly ask for prayer requests for? Get out. Release me. Wrong. He doesn't ask for that. Listen to what he asked for. That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly 
as I ought to speak. Paul's initial request is, fill me with boldness. Fill me with boldness. I, I, I'll confess to you, I just don't know. I, I'm, not much, I'm not as mature as Paul is. Had I been thrown in jail or prison in the Peruvian airport, I would have been texting and calling and using my one phone call to say someone pull some strings and get me out of here. But Paul is sitting there and he says, listen, pray that I would have boldness to proclaim with fullness the gospel. That I would be a worthy ambassador of Christ. That's my heart. That's my desire. That encourages our hearts. Be, being a prisoner for the gospel is not just a circumstance to cope with for Paul. It's an opportunity to share the gospel. And in reality for Paul, it's a title that he fully embraces. All throughout the New Testament, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ. He embraces that title. Because he knows that as a prisoner of Christ, the gospel will be advanced and furthered. The reality is that it's easy for us to allow circumstances to overcome our faith, to overshadow our faith. It's, it's easy to get so distracted by a, a bad circumstance that we allow the glory of God to be dimmed in our lives to those around us. And the encouragement from Paul is do not let that happen. Shine forth the gospel. In whatever circumstance you're in, show yourself to be a faithful bondservant, a faithful slave of Christ that promotes and speaks the gospel. And the question this morning is do we do that? Do, do we respond to difficult situations in a way that makes the gospel even more apparent in our lives? How do we respond when we are caught off guard by a surprising illness in our own life or in the life of a family member? How do we respond when we lose our jobs? How do, how do we respond when we get cut from the team? How do we respond when we're persecuted? How do we respond when life is not peachy and circumstances are trying? Life is not always perfect. Magna, the, the lady that you pray for frequently, is the manager of the hotel in Culpa in the Chankai River Valley. The hotel has grown the food is great. It really is good. And, I mean, it's, she has worked on the hotel. She's invested her time and energy only to be forced out in December. There's no option. She's gone. Why? It's political. Nothing that she's done. How does she respond? She responds with brotherly love and saying, I want to make sure you have a place to come when you come here. She responds not with hopelessness, but trusting 
the hope-filled words of a passage like Jeremiah 29 11 spoken in dark times to God's people but saying I have plans for you and she trusts those how do we respond in trying times how do we respond the second person that Paul refers to is in verse 9 it's Onesimus we know Onesimus from Paul's letter to Philemon he was a rebellious slave who stole from Philemon after stealing from him he escaped and fled to Rome in an attempt to blend into the people there he, he basically was hoping to just disappear and be away from Philemon Philemon had most likely written him off turn over to the book of Philemon it's just before Hebrews and I want to read to you eight verses that will give us a better picture of who Onesimus was and, and what Paul wrote of him. It's between the book of Titus and Hebrews. We begin re reading in verse 8 of Philemon. There's only one chapter. Paul says this, he says, Therefore, he's writing to Philemon, Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. There's the fruitfulness of Paul in prison. The fruitfulness of Paul in prison is what? A new convert a new child of God. Verse 11, describing Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I have wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a little while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He's writing to Philemon, the, the slave owner, who has been stolen from and lied to by a slave. And in effect, he's saying, listen, I'm sending Onesimus back to you in Colossae. But I'm not sending him as a useless violin. I'm sending him as a beautiful violin in perfect harmony, in perfect tune with God's will and God's plan. And he is useful. He is useful. Verse 11, he says, formerly... Onesimus was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. This useless man, this useless violin was now useful in the hands of the master. He's useful in the plan of God. Do not wash your hands of him any longer. He is useful to you and to me. Verse 16 and the end of 15. He says that he sends him back that you might have him back forever. Forever. The enduring relationship and nature of a child of God, that he would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Onesimus leaves as a slave. 
he leaves as a man who Philemon thought little of, I can guarantee you. A slave who stole from him. But he's transformed by the light of God's grace. He's transformed by the power of God. And he comes back as a beloved brother. Don't miss that relational change. Don't miss that. He leaves as a rebellious slave and he comes back as a beloved brother. Why? Because of the power of God. The power of God in his life. Don't miss that. The title of slave is trumped by the identity and title and relationship of brother. He is a beloved brother. He, like you, is a child of God. And Paul writes and says, listen, Philemon, Onesimus has been reconciled to God. He's been reconciled to God. And now you be reconciled to him. Settle the disputes. Settle your differences. And welcome him at, back as a beloved brother. Two things we learn here. One, God is always at work. God is always at work. Fifth and sixth graders. What is this? What are you studying? You're studying God's providence. We can't miss God's providential hand. We can't miss it. You see that here, don't you? You see God working out his plan. That a slave would rebel and flee from his owner. He's getting away. He's out of there. And this rebellious slave runs into all people, of all people, Paul. You know, that had to brighten his day. I'm sure at the beginning he was thinking, great. I've got to listen to a preacher who's pinned up, you know. But ultimately, he praises God because he knows that it was through Paul that the gospel was preached to him. We must see God's hand constantly at work in his creation. Don't miss that. Don't miss it. There is no such thing as luck. God's hand is constantly working in your life. God's hand is working in my life to accomplish his plan and his purpose. We can't miss that in the life of Onesimus. The second thing we learn is that people are changed by God. People are changed by God. God transformed his life. Paul certainly understood this. He, he obviously knew what he was talking about. Why? Because Paul perhaps experienced the greatest change of anybody we have recorded in Scripture, right? He went from a persecutor to the persecuted. He went from one who shouted threats and killed Christians to one who adamantly and boldly stood for the gospel. One who was in chains for the gospel. He, he wrote of in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He said, behold, all who are in Christ are what a new creation. The old has left, the new has come. He knows the transforming power of God's grace Listen, you and I have to know that as well. And not just intellectually. God has the power to change lives. There is no one beyond God's power to change your life. There's no one sitting here that God cannot do a work of grace in your life. There's no one that you know beyond the power of God's grace. 
No one. That, that person that you go to school with, the person you work with, the person you live with, the person you live beside. The person that you knew five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. That you would picture as the worst person you've ever met because you're perfect. That person is not beyond the reach of God's grace. Some people sit here today and go, I, I am, there's no way God would save me. How could he love me that much? You are not beyond God's grace. You are not beyond it. Grace, grace greater than all our sin. Grace that is powerful to cleanse within. Here's the difficult part of that truth is that we bask in it and we revel and we love it in our own life. I love to think back of how rotten I was as a high schooler, not because those were fun days, but because it's a testimony of God's grace for saving me out of that. So I love to think about that in my own life, but it's like a lot of times, you know, I just struggle to allow God to do that in other people's lives. So someone who's wronged me in the past who I haven't seen in several years, I, I just sometimes find it hard to think that God could actually do something in their life. We, we tend to identify people with how we knew them 10 years ago or five years ago. We, we tend to identify them with that and hold that picture of them in front of them every time we see them. What has God done in your life in the last 10 years? What has God done in your life in the last five years? How have you changed? Is it too far for God to have changed another person? Is it, is it too much for God to have changed an Onesimus in your life? And I would appeal to you today, show and extend the mercy of God to those in your life who would be in Onesimus. Don't harbor bitterness. It gets you nowhere. Do we actively extend God's mercy? Do we have a forgiving spirit? Do we follow in the admonition of Scripture to forgive just as Christ has forgiven you? Or would we rather hold it over their head so that when they return as a beloved brother, we still identify them as one who has wronged me, stolen from me, stolen my reputation, stolen my business, stolen you fill in the blank. If you and I are Philemon, how do we respond to that letter? How do we respond to the admonition of Paul to say the last time you saw Onesimus, he was a low-down, good-for-nothing, rebellious thief. But guess what? God has done a work in his life, and now he's a beloved brother. How do we respond to that? How do we respond? 
So I just want to leave you with those three questions. What do we learn from these two men? We need to examine these three questions in our own life. First, how are we described by those around us? How are we described? What picture does our life give? Second, do we respond to difficult situations in a way that glorifies God and furthers the gospel? And finally, do we extend mercy to those around us in the same manner that God has extended mercy to us? Do we demonstrate a forgiving spirit? Do we allow room for God's grace to work in others' lives as it did in the life of Onesimus? Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you thanking you for the forgiveness and the mercy that you have shown us. Father, we bow giving you praise and, and adoration for you are our Redeemer. God, we pray that you would make us useful. God, it's easy to, to get down and think I don't have the the great big talent of so-and-so and I can't do this like he can or I can't do that like she can. God, it's easy to compare ourselves with people that we kind of set on, on pedestals. But God, we praise you that Tychicus did not fall into that trap. Tychicus faithfully served you in whatever opportunity and atmosphere and ability he had. And so God, we pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to be faithful servants whatever skills and whatever opportunities you place before us, God, make us useful in your hands. And God, I know that realistically, the people in here are just like me. They, they struggle. They struggle with times of just forgiving those who have wronged them in the past. So God, I pray that you give each one of us a spirit of mercy and a spirit of forgiveness that, God, the way we treat and the way we respond to your work in others' lives, God, will be a demonstration of the gospel. God, use us as a body of believers to promote the gospel and to advance it regardless of circumstances. God, I know there are people in this room today, God, who are going through very, very tough times. God, I pray that in those times they would carry themselves in a way that shows your glory, your power, your grace. God, we want to glory in you. We want to rejoice in you, our Redeemer. And God, we stand now to do that. In Christ's name, amen.